Welcome again, and if you and I haven't met, my name is Brian Haybig, and that was Adam Radcliffe, and we're both pastors here at Downtown Prez, but great to have you here. Thanks for braving the cold. There's more of you here at 11 than at 8.30, so I'm just going to just not draw any conclusions about that, but uh, I, let me say this before I jump into the passage, <clears throat> and did this a little bit more this past fall, but I want to revisit, revisit this, and just, I want to keep this before us, and that is, please... Meet people around you, welcome folks around you. If you're walking through the lobby, even if you haven't been here a long time and you see someone standing by herself, himself, just say hello and make them feel welcome. And, I, you know, it's funny, as I've said this to people, I've had two different kinds of responses. I've had some people say, I'm so glad you're saying that. I feel like we need to get better about that. And then I've had other people say, I know, but it scares me. And just if you're one of the latter, I get it. And... um Press on through. Please, please uh, welcome someone. Introduce yourself. Uh, see if you can be helpful. But we just want to continue to keep before each other that I, I, the tendency of our hearts is going to be to turn inward. That's just how the human heart goes. So we'll just kind of know the people that we know, and we'll talk to the people that we already know. And uh, what goes all the way back to before creation, the Trinity. Um, making new creatures to bring into this circle of love is the outflowing, welcoming love of God. And so we want to traffic in that here, and we need your help. So please help us do that. Even if, even if you're new, we need your help. Well, we're starting a new series this morning, and uh, going to be looking at this for the next few months, and it's the book of Colossians. <clears throat> this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, and it's not a big city. I, I don't like to do a lot of intro stuff on the front end because then it gets forgotten the further you get into the series, so I can just kind of farm stuff in as we go, but let me give you a few basics. This is the Apostle Paul, wrote a bunch of letters in the New Testament. Uh, Timothy, the young pastor Timothy, must have helped him write it or maybe be his scribe to write things down. His name is at the beginning, but Paul is, is the main author. And he wrote it later in life. He, uh, it's one of the letters that he wrote in prison. Apparently, he wrote it when he was imprisoned in Rome. And in fact, the, the next to the last sentence in Colossians is, remember my chains. And it's really important as we're studying this, you know, as he's talking about doctrine and theology and, and how your family needs to work or how your work needs to be approached, you know, don't picture him at the kitchen table, you know, cup of coffee, just kind of firing this off reflectively. He's in prison as he writes this. And apparently he had never met the Colossians, and except for maybe one, they had never met him. The gospel got there. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But this is a small city. You know, some of the churches he wrote were big. I mean, the big would be Rome. He, the, his epistle to the Romans went to Rome. But this is a small city. It's in what uh, they would have called Asia Minor. It's in what we would call Western Turkey. And apparently what happened was when Paul was preaching about 120, give or take, miles away in Ephesus, that's who he wrote the Ephesian letter to, uh, it says in the book of Acts that because of his ministry in Ephesus that the gospel went to all of Asia. Now, Luke doesn't mean every single individual. He just means that the gospel really just permeated that area. So this man named Epaphras must have heard Paul and taken the gospel 
to his hometown of Colossae. Before I read this, let me say this. Um, Something that you're going to bump into if you read Paul's stuff, and and I hope that you're going to bump into if you're around downtown Prez, really, I hope in any capacity, community group or worship, whatever, is the centrality of this thing called the gospel. And it's a biblical term, and it's just shorthand for the good news, and it's a particular kind of good news. It's the good news that doesn't just rise to the challenge of the bad news, it overwhelms it and transforms it and wins. And it's the good news that when we had disobeyed God and we could not obey our way out of it or behavior modification our way out of it or New Year's resolution our way out of it, we could not clean ourselves up or dig our way out of debt or forgive our own sins, that God sent His precious son, his treasure, not just his son, but one who himself is God and perfectly reflects the father back to himself. Perfect bliss between the two. That he sent his son to become a man and to live in front of everybody the way a human being should live. To love God perfectly and to have an outflowing heart of love for people any kind of person, perfectly, and then to just get savaged and crushed, not only by people, but by the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't undergo the punishment that we deserve. That's the gospel. And that because he did that, that if people trust him, they get credit for being as righteous as he is. It it sounds made up. And that all the fear of punishment and divine wrath goes away forever. Taken care of, removed. That's the gospel. For Paul, it changed everything. And it's really important to understand. For Paul, and really for the whole Bible, the gospel is not like a data point. Or it's not like a tweaking of Judaism or tweaking of some other religious system. It is completely its own thing. There is no other news like this. There is no other power like this. And, and so much so that it even changes the way he starts a letter. He even breaks from tradition of how somebody would normally start a Greek letter in his day because of the gospel. So let's look at that. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints... And faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray. 
Our Father, there's, uh, there's nothing like worshiping you. And we are people who have been worshiping all this week. We have worshiped ourselves. And we have worshiped work. And we've worshiped homes. And we've worshiped children. And we've worshiped approval. So we've been worshiping. And none of that has given us life, and none of that is transforming the way we need to be transformed. We need to worship you. And you call us to worship you. So we ask that even as we're hearing you, that it will be worship and will fuel us to worship. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I know a lot of you would know this, but uh, before I moved here to be pastor of this church, I was a campus minister for 10 years, and um, it was a great time in my life. At one point, I was having a conversation with a fellow campus minister, very bright friend of mine and a, a very gifted minister. And uh, we were just kind of comparing notes and bat, not batting ideas around. But anyway, I can't remember if he raised the question or I raised the question, but the question that we put before each other was, what do you think right now is the most dominant idol on the college campus, as you see it? Now, I-D-O-L, idol. And just so that we're on the same page, an idol, biblically, is not just, you know, a statue or a shrine. It can be that, but it's just when you take anything in God's good creation and you make it ultimate. So, I mean, it can be family, it can be work, it can be significant other, it can be all those things. But you take a good thing, you make it ultimate, you try to get that thing to be and do what only God can be and do. So we ask, what do you think the dominant idol is? Because what people would probably think it is is something like sex or popularity or you're going to be important when you get out or whatever. And those are big. I mean, that makes its presence known on the campus for sure. But as we talked about it, where we landed, and I'm not saying this is the last word on it. I'm giving you an opinion here. But, but our opinion was that the dominant idol we saw on the campus is the next fun thing I'm going to do. Meaning that just to, to always be thinking, what's next? What, what am I going to buy? Who am I going to see? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? It's just, it's the next fun thing that I'm going to do. And the great thing is that that completely disappears after college. <laughs> it's fantastic. It vaporizes at about 22 or 23. And you know, you're laughing, I mean, because it doesn't. And... And it may be that we have a lot less discretionary time, maybe compared to college, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But I would say even some of the desperation increases. And that more and more of me is thinking about what's the next thing I'm going to do to my house? What's the next thing I'm going to purchase? Uh, what's the next accomplishment that I'm, tr- that I'm working on? What, what, so maybe, we, maybe not the word fun, but just what, what is the next thing I'm going to do or buy or secure? Where's the next place I'm going to go? It would be interesting to know how much of our insides in this room this past week were just churning about the next time I go out of town. And those can all be good things. It can be good to modify a house. It can be good to, to go out of town, Sure but they're not good gods. And here's the thing. The the more our hearts 
are consumed with the next fun thing or the next important thing or the next energizing thing. What happens is that I'm driven by consumption. I'm absorbed with myself. And the interruptions and the needs of other people become obstacles to the next thing I'm going to do or buy or where I'm going to go. Which means that this thing called love really has an uphill battle because love is mindful of others. In fact, it even puts them first. So, the, okay, so then the question is, how can people like us be, really become loving people? And I'm talking about not just do loving stuff, but how can people like us actually change? Not the behaviors, but like me. The deep down real me in my heart of hearts. How can people like us change and become loving Because it can't just be through behavior modification. Because essentially then what you end up being is nice. And really in some ways manipulative. What, what scripture sets out to us, and, and, and it, it's, it's for sure in the Old Testament, but it is explicit in the New Testament, is that the only thing that can really change us is the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like really change who we actually are. Not just behaviors, not just habits. That it can go somewhere that New Year's resolutions and personal disciplines and good habits and goals cannot go into the heart of hearts. And Paul loved writing about this because that happened to him. He said, I was on a fast track to like surpass my peers in my religious vocation. And then Christ burst in. I wasn't looking for him. I was looking to shut down the worship of him. And I met him and everything changed. And again, that's why I say, for Paul, the gospel is not like additional teaching to the good teaching you've already received. It is the game changer. Globally unique. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So let's look at how that even comes in. Just, he can't get the letter started before that, that gets into it. Two things. Let's look at how Paul greets Gentiles. And second, why Paul thanks God. How Paul greets Gentiles, Gentile city, Asia Minor. And then why Paul thanks God. And first off, how he greets. And he he deviates from custom. Now, I'm going to throw out three things I want you to see about this greeting. This is just in the first couple of verses. Let's see if I can keep these straight. The greeting is apostolic. It's atypical, and it's Jewish, all right? It's apostolic, it's atypical, and it's Jewish. It's apostolic. How does he start? Now, if you've you've read in the New Testament, this language is familiar, but I want you to think about what he's doing. The custom is, Greek letter, around this time, you don't say the, the recipient's name first, you say your name first, the writer's name first. So Paul, first thing he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Why does he say that? Well, think about it. He's writing a lot. Like, I don't, this is one of his shorter letters. I don't know if I've ever handwritten a letter as long as Colossians. So it's a substantive letter. He doesn't know them. They've never met him and he's never met them. And he's going to get into some real particulars about here's what you need to believe and here's what you need to do and here's what needs to be true of your church. You know, people 
people are people. I'm sure that people would have been prone to think, uh, no one asked you. You know, like there've been times where I've gotten a weird out of left field email from a person I've never met about our church and thought, okay, no one asked. (laughs) Paul is saying, I, I, I didn't choose this, but by the will of God, I was not looking for it. He made me an apostle. I'm not better than you. He'll acknowledge freely I'm a fellow sinner. But he set me apart as a witness of the resurrected Christ, even enabling me to do miracles, to publicly verify that this is for real, so that I speak and act for Christ, even as a fellow sinner. And I think it's important to say that because almost 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, there's a big group of dominantly Gentiles in a room studying this letter by this guy named Paul, and we're treating it as if the words that he wrote are the very words of Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. He's telling them, I'm interested in you, and I want the best for you, and I'm speaking authoritatively to you because I'm an apostle. Um, But he does something atypical, and this is really, I think it's great. All right, first century Greek letter, this would be the, the template. First, the name of the person writing, and then the name or the title of the person who will receive the letter, the recipient. And then you would get the Greek word kairain, greetings. Okay, so Paul to the Colossians, custom would have been kairain, greetings. And in all 13 of the letters by Paul that we have in the New Testament, he never does that. He breaks with custom by doing this. He says, Paul to the recipients, and instead of saying kairain, he says charis, grace. 13 out of 13 times. And to our knowledge, no one else was doing that. Why did he do that? Because it changed everything for Paul. Paul was raised to be not just a a devout Jew, but to be a Pharisee. Trained with Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis of the or clerics of that time. He was trained to be the strictest of the strict, obedient, Torah-keeping Jews. And he could not find peace with God. And then he met the Messiah. And all this training in the law of the prophets just went, Shh! and he saw how it was fulfilled in him but that the way you're going to be right with God and know him and love and fear and know that you're reconciled to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not going to be through how hard you work. It is going to be by God's grace. And all his letters start that way. And I've already kind of gotten you ready for this one, but, but it's a Jewish greeting. Now, again, if you've read his letters before, this kind of language is familiar, but, but just slow down for a second and listen to what he says to Gentiles. Verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The saints is an Old Testament term, the holy ones. It's an Old Testament term for the people of God. You didn't call Philistine saints. You didn't call Egyptian saints. The Israelites were the saints. That word's in the Psalms. 
precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And this guy raised to be a Pharisee calls Gentiles to the saints in Colossae, in Asia Minor. And he calls them brothers. Now, a devout Jew might have conceded that, yes, God did create Hittites and Egyptians and Philistines and Greeks and all that. They are God's creation. And even, I guess at some level, my neighbor. But, but a devout Jew would not have called them brothers. And he calls them brothers. And, and I love this part. He says, grace and peace. And some people think, by the way, I'll mention this because this is the name of our church plant, that that's almost shorthand for the benediction. You know, like I, I love to give this benediction from the Old Testament. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. He says this very Israelite blessing, grace and peace to you from God. And catch the next word, our Father. That the God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is your Father, and He's my Father, so He's our Father, and we're brothers. That is a very Jewish way to start a letter to Gentiles. And the reason I'm belaboring that point a little bit is that I, I really want you to buy into this, and I want it to wash over you, because I think it just makes the Scriptures so delightful is that there's not multiple stories of redemption in Scripture. There's not even two. There's one story of redemption in God's Word. There's two Testaments. There's the story of redemption before the Messiah and the story of redemption continuing during and after the Messiah, but it's one story. And that can transform how you read the Bible because you get both the same bad news and the same good news. One, I mean, one of the amazing things is that you would think these heroes in the Bible, that the Bible would be doing everything possible just to like, let you see their good qualities so that you can copy them. And that's why we have Moses after the flood, after the ark, drunk and passed out. And his son doing something that the text is not clear about that changes the whole family. Uh, that's why we've got Adam's son killing his other son. That's why we've got Moses getting so mad and tired at the Israelites that he hits something that he was supposed to speak to, and God has to say, for dishonoring me that way, you may not enter the promised land. We get David. And David was an amazing guy, and an adulterer, and a guy with a lot of wives, and concubines. And a horrible parent. If you're a parent and you feel like a bad parent, read more about David. It will lift your spirits at how much better you are at parenting than David. Bad news, bad news, bad news. Sin, idolatry, selfishness, just knuckleheadedness. It's all through there. And what it deserves from God is his displeasure. And it's the same good news. It is the same good news even before Jesus shows up. It is the same good news. So that Abraham could, it actually says about Abraham in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You hear that? Not that Abraham obeyed his way out or jumped through the right hoops. 
Abraham just believed God and God credited that to him as righteousness. That is gospel. That David, adultery, murder, terrible family life, too many wives, concubines, other mistakes, bad mistakes. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not count against him. I've sinned. And he's not pretending like I haven't sinned, but he won't count it against me. For Paul, there's one gospel. And there's one story of redemption. So that's how he greets them. Now, what about, why does Paul thank God for these people he's never met? And let, let's, let's say it in this way. He, he's thanking God for the fruit, but he's thanking God for the root. It's both. All right, what is the fruit? Look in verse 3. We, now Paul, that seems to be Paul and Timothy saying that together. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So two of the biggies would be faith and love, that this group of people in Asia Minor, that in some ways you wouldn't expect them to believe in Jesus, they believe in Jesus. And then it transformed them. And one of the ways you can see it is is they start loving each other very deeply. Paul brings it up twice in this passage. We've heard about your love. And for Paul, that's the diagnostic. You might have great theology, and you might have a really sweet, intact family, and you might be really great with money and all that kind of stuff, but, like, love is the gauge for what is going on with you. He says, well, what I hear is that you love each other quite a bit. I mean, think about he's in prison So he's in chains and he's hearing about, man, the gospel went to this city where I've never been and it's changing people. They believe and they love each other. It must have lifted his heart, this fruit. So he says, I thank God for that. All right, so what is the root that led to the fruit? He says it's the truth. Okay, this is where you got to be really careful. What does he mean by the truth? Because if somebody raised to be a Pharisee, you'd expect, well, it's the truth of the law. You do what God commands, and that's how people change. Is that what he says is the truth that changed them? Look in verse 5, halfway through verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And by the way, he already kind of told you he was going this direction back when he says, to the saints and the brothers, and this next phrase is really important, the faithful brothers in Christ. And Paul loves that expression. And we're going to revisit that expression. In Christ. That when you believed that God did this mysterious thing where he united you to Jesus, So that what Jesus has, you have. You are in him, and he is in you, and it bears fruit. And and Paul says, I I thank God that what's happening in your midst is happening all over the world, not because of us, but because of the power of the gospel. Um, 
I watched a, a video this past week, watched it again with some of the family last night. And I don't have the background in environmentalism or ecology or anything to know if this is sound or not, but it was on the internet, so I assume that it's, it's true. It was a vid- short video about the reintroduction of wolves in the Yellowstone part. Have you, have you heard this or seen this? In 1995, wolves were reintroduced in the Yellowstone. And um, so, you know, they obviously thought, you know, some deer and elk will start being eaten. They would know that would be one of the fall effects. But all these things started happening because these areas where deer and elk used to just overrun, uh, especially in river gorges, low-lying areas, even deer that hadn't been killed, uh, they avoided those areas. And so growth just, just uh, took off. Vegetation took off. And even like tree growth took off. So that rabbits came back, foxes came back, mice came back, which means that hawks came back, which means that songbirds came back to the trees, which even meant that the rivers became more set and channeled in their direction because there was an erosion because the riverbeds were more established by more vegetation because wolves were reintroduced. Now, the sentence that I'm trying to avoid at this point is to say, now, the gospel is like those wolves. <laughs> or, those wolves are like the gospel, because that would be weird. But what I'm trying to say is that no one could have expected, you know, <laughs> bring in wolves and the river will deepen. <laughs> bring in wolves and mice will show up. But this outside thing had to be introduced into the system to have these downstream effects. We try to bring about change through, like, discipline or goals or visualization or digging deeper or or whatever you want to call it. Goals can be good, but they cannot change you. And again and again, what you see in the New Testament is what brings about, like, the deep, deep change. I mean, even at the level of maybe somebody who says, look, Naturally, I don't like kids, and I'm starting to learn how to love kids. Like somebody without children. Like I'm, I'm learning how to be interested in someone younger than 25. Or I've always been frightened when I'm approached on the street by somebody that wants money, and I'm learning how to look at that person now as a human being and not talk at them, but to them and listen like to actually change. And it's, it is the introduction, not only the introduction, but the going deep, deep down into the real us, the real heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, this is so counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive for all of us. It's counterintuitive for parents. I know not everyone here is a parent, but some of you are. You think about, wow, my child's not exhibiting the right behavior. What does that child most need right now? What that child most needs is just to be taught the right behavior, which, of course, parents have to do. And we need to understand this. Just teaching the behavior won't change the child, nor the teenager, nor the adult. But the good news going deep, deep down into our hearts can change us.
like to really become convinced this is not a little mopping up operation. It's not like a tweak here and a tweak there and a little bit more devotional life here and less cussing over there and then we're good. I am so sinful and flawed and self-absorbed and broken and disobedient. He will have to do something radical. And the gospel is radical. Let let me give you one example and we're done. Um, I just, I came across this in an article I read this past week. And this is one of the reasons why it's great that people write good articles And they find something buried in a library archive somewhere that none of us ever would have seen. And then people like us can can hear it. It was an article by a guy about what was going on with American Christians about race before the civil rights movement in, in the 20th century. What were like big Christian groups or ministries or whatever, what were they saying and doing? And, uh, and this guy in his research, he came across an article from Moody Monthly. You may have heard of the Moody Institute. Adam uh, attended there. Moody Monthly, 1943. Okay, so just for context, 1943, middle of World War II, uh, Jim Crow South going gangbusters, full strength, 20 years before the Civil Rights Act. Okay, 1943. And it was, this is an article, I'm just going to read from the article. It says, um, a U.S. Army private wrote about what sounded rather ominous from the headline. The headline was actually kind of has a racial epithet. The, the name of the article was, We Encountered the Japs and Not a Shot Was Fired. So this was the tale of a group of 25 American soldiers, of whom all but six were African Americans, led by a southern white major, and who were headed toward an encounter with Japanese civilians. Now, their encounter was not in Japan or on, on, in combat, they were assigned a duty in a, in a Japanese relocation camp, an, inter, an internment camp. And so somehow, it doesn't give the details, they ended up at a worship service together. So you've got 25 soldiers, six, uh, six of whom are white, 19 are African American, southerner white officer in charge with Japanese Americans. And they're in a worship service together. And this private who was present wrote about it. And here's what he said. As hearts were united in chorus and hymn, we knew that within we were of one color and of one blood, the blood of Christ. Perhaps some of us could scarcely believe the emotions that moved within our hearts as we marveled to see north and south, black, white, and yellow, the latter our enemies enjoying this oneness through the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Uh, I don't think there were a lot of people writing like that in 1943. And I'm not saying there's as much of that as there should be now. And honestly, could the United States be more polarized right now? And could race be more tense right now? So what will change us? I mean, there's behaviors that we need to modify. There's actions that we need to change. But it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that can change us. Change us. That even the racism in this room and our own hearts, that can change us.
because it can change anything. So that's going to be what I'm going to pray right now, that God would change us through the power of his gospel. Let's pray. Father, we ask for the very thing that you know better than we know that we need, that you would change us by your power through the good news of your Son. We pray that the bad news would be more vivid to us than it's ever been, that we would be humbled by our own sin, not somebody else's, ours. We pray that the good news would be so much brighter and life-giving and warm and welcoming and rich and lavish than we've ever experienced so that you go deep down in our hearts and change us, that you grant us repentance. Father, show it to us either for the first time, for some here, or for the millionth time, and change us. Change us for our city, change us for our world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.